All right, so welcome to another episode of Healing Racism in Schools with Charlotte Stevens and the Ancestors. And today I have with us Desmond Williams of Nylinka School Solutions. He's also the author of the book, The Burning House, Educating Black Males in Modern America. So welcome to the show, Desmond. Great to have you. Sister Charlotte, thank you for having me after we've been planning and plotting and scheming and walking and running on the Underground Railroad to get this done for like seven months. It's good to uh, be in this space. Absolutely. And I love connecting with you. I I say on my trailer that I'm going to ask every one of my guests, um, how did schools serve you and in what ways did schools fail you? So I am going to start with that, which will probably just lead us right into your book anyway, because you share a lot of great stories in your book. So in what ways did schools serve you, Desmond, as as a, when you were a black boy in schools? Schools served me in that, um, I learned that school is a process of validation um, and they hindered me in that I believed that I needed that validation. Mm. So in a lot of ways, uh, the K-12 education and K-20 education for that matter is a, is a catch-22 because you know you need the validation and then we seek it. But what ends up happening is you just get filled with all of this, you know, bundled software, as my mentor, Michael Billion, calls it, and this programming um, that is really detrimental to who black people are and should be in this country. And uh, I tell a story in the book of um, my ninth grade literature teacher, who up until that time of the year, um, was super nice at least I thought she was nice and I was an A student from kindergarten all the way up until that point wow and she basically told me that something I was very interested in doing was was silly and stupid writing sitcoms right yeah Yeah. that was my that that was my thing I, I wanted to um I thought I was a funny person and I wanted to write sitcoms for the Cosby show and cheers and all of those different world and night court family ties. I saw we had the same, a lot of the same shows in common. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that, that was, that was my thing. And, uh, people used to tell me I was funny. I wasn't a class clown or anything like that. And sometimes I would just drift off in class and she saw that folder and, you know, she, she asked me a question and I, I wasn't prepared and I apologized to her after class because I was a, I was always respectful of my teachers. Like I was taught to respect elders and adults. And so I apologized um, because what she was talking about was important, but it just wasn't, you know, I was a 14 year old kid. And then she essentially didn't validate the apology. And I was, it literally was a, it was like a revolutionary light switch went off because I was like, Oh, you may not be able to do enough to validate. Um, you may not be able to do enough to appease mm-hmm. these people. So then what should you be doing? And, um, you know, it just gave me a lot of insight as to why um, our people, as to why black boys um, sag their pants and use the N-word mm-hmm. and come across as, as, as quote-unquote anti-intellectual because it's a it's a conscious or unconscious act of rebellion against a 
system of oppression. Right. And I love that you mentioned that because that's something that I talk about is that sometimes, well, a lot of times what we, we call it classify as defiance is resistance to all those messages that we're receiving. I wanted to read from the book, though, because I know that the, you're talking about it. Um, when you write about it in the book, I feel the pain of uh, presenting your dreams to your teacher. And it, it says here, um, I still remember her icy blue eyes and the sound of my dreams swishing in the trash. So it talks about with horrid, with a horrid misstep on my part. Um, Without hesitation and without taking her eyes off of me, she tossed the notebook into the trash bin. So you show her your notebook that has, you know, your dreams in it, and and then she she's looking at you and just tosses it into the trash, and and that that was a game changer for you, right? So so kindergarten through ninth grade, you're getting straight A's, um, and even when we talk about kids daydreaming, that's visualizing, right? Like we we can dismiss it as daydreaming, or you can see the power of visualization. You're visualizing your life um, of what could be, and you share that vision with with this teacher who's supposed to hold the vision. Because another thing you talk about is that um, there was a line in here about fostering. Yeah, there it is. Because you talked about transformers was originally was another passion you had, right? You kept asking your teachers, what skills do I need to design transformers? Somebody tells you to be an auto mechanic. A lot of teachers don't even encourage you. And so you say the dream of becoming a toy designer slowly wilted because no one fostered it. And one of the things I talked about is that the average teacher has no idea how to foster and facilitate black and black and brown excellence from our our students. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. It's one of those things where, and that part of the text, um, I was trying to be very delicate because I wasn't blaming those teachers. I was simply making an observation mm-hmm. because a lot of those teachers would say, "Oh, Desmond, you're you're smart enough. You can you can design transformers. I I see it for you." Right. But in terms of what do you what like what does one need to do to get into that space? Oh, you want to be a toy designer? You're probably gonna have to. Um, major in some kind of mechanical engineer right engineering you're probably you're probably going to have to um be an architect or do take classes on some kind of design theory or maybe mm-hmm. you can go to lawrence tech or some of these other schools that were really prominent um in the state of michigan in the late 80s and early 90s because everyone was everything in the state of michigan was was built around the auto industry right building designing and primarily the auto industry was, was staffed with black people, right? I mean, that was, right? There was a lot of black people in the auto industry. Lot, lots of um, lots of black people, but I wouldn't say exclusively or even half. Um, because again, you could point to Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Cincinnati, Gary. Um, but on the outskirts of those cities and on a, in, a, in all of those states, um, you know, black people are the minority. So... Mm-hmm. You know, the state of Michigan as a whole in, in 2008 when the, the crash hit, you know, um, the governor of Michigan at the time was saying, you know, we've we've been in a, a economic and financial crisis since 1995 or 1996. Right. You're talking 12 or 13 years later um, because those jobs went uh, overseas. A lot of those jobs went to Mexico. And then a lot of those jobs went down south to Tennessee. Um in Texas and other parts of the country where the cost of labor was, the cost of living was cheaper, so the mm-hmm. labor was cheaper. Um, so I decided, I remember my dad in the early 90s being asked to move to Knoxville to go work at a plant, um, and that these other plants within the city limits were, were closing. So not not all African Americans, but a, 
a significant portion to the degree that um, I don't remember who said it, but if the, the quote was, um, if America has a cold, then black America has the flu. Mm. So when so when that um, when those factories started closing and some of the auxiliary organizations like Delco and Delco Electronics, places that supplemented the auto industry started to collapse and fold, you know, we, we really felt that pain. Right. So, right. Yeah. Sorry if that took us too far off topic, but you know, my father worked for General Motors for 37 years, mm-hmm. um, put me through college and he probably would have paid for grad school if, if, if I hadn't paid for it. So, yeah. I think this is it's completely related to the topic because black economics is definitely tied to, you know, what's happening with our education system. So totally makes sense. You also mentioned the idea this um teachers who come into the classroom with this notion of, of manifest destiny or the messiah complex. Um say more about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's this idea of we have to save them. Who's them? We, we have to save these starving little black kids. Mm-hmm. It's like the Sally Fields. I'm dating myself now. Save <laughs> children commercials from the from back in the day where they would show an, an, an African child. With um, flies on their face. With flies on their and face. The and an inflated belly. And an inflated stomach. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same kind of trope. Their schools don't work. And the only way that those children are going to have a fighting chance is if we swoop in with uh, more white dominance. Like their their people are not equipped to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's our it's our mission, it's our duty to come in and teach them what we know. It's it's evangelizing. What's wrong with that? So I'm a white teacher and I come in and I recognize and I and I I'm playing devil's advocate. I know what's wrong with it, but I'm a white teacher and I want to come in and I want to I want to fix things. I, I see that the African American community could use some help. And so I want to yeah, come in and fix things. What's wrong with that attitude? There's nothing wrong with a teacher who wants to come in and teach and support um, the learning of of any group of people. The the problem is um this this concept of um, what's the term that I want to use the the notion that there's something wrong with them mm. a right? deficit there's a deficit the, the, yeah the pathologizing of our people mm-hmm. when when really what the the issue that's at the forefront of all of our concerns is white supremacy how do you define and, white supremacy what does that mean to you so the most uh, comprehensive definition that I know is a is a cross pollination between that of um, Neely Fuller and Dr. Francis Crest Wilson, and it's this idea of um, a power equation in which uh, white people are on the top of the fraction, if you will, right, mm-hmm. and people who are classified as non-white, whether that be black, um, Hispanic, Indian, Asian. Uh, Native Americans are on the bottom of that equation for the sake of um, maintaining uh, white power and dominance. Mm -hmm. And it's done through actions, thoughts, speech, and symbols. And what um, Neely Fuller and Dr. 
Nelson kind of diverges this notion of uh, white genetic survival. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Wilson was a, psych- a third generation psychiatrist, and she said that all of those things in that power dynamic, the thoughts, symbols, actions, were there to um, protect white people from uh, their own genetic annihilation. So mm-hmm. you have, she would say, you have mass incarceration, miseducation, uh, police brutality, slavery, so on and so forth, because um, people who classify themselves are, as white are afraid that if we do what Dr. King said and love one another, that eventually white people will be wiped out. Right, and I, I believe I saw, um, I, if it's the same woman, she's a, she's a, if it's the same one, she's an older black woman? Is that who we're talking about? Yeah, Dr. Wilson died, I believe, in 2017, maybe, but she's uh, originally from Chicago. She was a um, physician, a psychiatrist yep. at Howard University for yeah. many years. Brilliant woman. I don't know if I agree with that. The thing that Neely Fuller says is, there's nothing that he sees, and I'm, I'm smiling as I say this, that would make him believe that the people who practice white supremacy are afraid of anything. So he, he, he equates it to maybe they were afraid of, quote-unquote, genetic annihilation, but it's the equivalent of the bully um, at the lunch counter in high school. He used to take money from kids because he needed it to eat, but he's gotten so good at it he just takes the lunch money because he can. Right, general principle. And I think, I think for a lot of people um, who practice white supremacy, because I don't necessarily believe that's something that all white people do, consciously or consciously, it's it's a bully pulpit. It's just kind of easy to do, right? Like, let's go take their lunch money. It's like, should we take it? It's like, it doesn't matter if we should take it. It's just right there. And there's that, and there's no same. repercussions, right? It's like there's not like any, you're not going to get in trouble for it. Yeah, but it, but at its core, to answer your question, because I I think I digress for your for your audience, it's a power equation, um, for the sake of dominance and control, and the thoughts, speech, actions, and I I can't stress enough um, the sim, the symbolic nature of how it operates, particularly having young children. Um, particularly having young daughters. Oh, let's talk about that. that. What are some of the symbols that, that you see? Up. Yeah, so what do you see from your, what are some of the symbols that you're noticing that maybe your daughters are also picking up on that are symbolic of white supremacy? It's, so it's it's Elsa. It's Frozen. Right. It's, it's even My Little Pony because because I'll, I'll have them watching like animals, but then I notice that all the little ponies are, are light colored and the pon- ponies that are demonized are all dark colored, right? Like I'm still, I'm still paying attention, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a presentation for NCEA, which is the National Catholic Education Association. And, and one of the points that I made, Charlotte, was, you know, are you all really ready for um, equity? Because you really should be calling it justice. And part of being just is just telling the truth. So if I walk into your school or if I walk into your church, and I see a, white Jesus? a symbolic picture of a Jesus who right. is historically Swedish white, Swedish Jesus. <laughs> then it's then that's not you know the notion of black Jesus is just preposterous because every all of everyone in that region of the world had color besides Greeks and Romans, right. as John Henry Clark said, and he wasn't Greek. 
and he wasn't Roman. So in, in a lot of ways, you know, it just comes across as, um, you know, some of those movies in my house, you know, me and my wife view it as, as pornographic. Mm. There's just no way my children can go anywhere near it. And it, you know, it's, it sucks because they're children. Right. And they don't get it. And it's right. like, well, why can't I watch that? And, and, it, and it feels like you're the bad guy, right? Daddy's trying to keep me from fun. All my other friends are watching it. Why are you so radical, daddy? Yeah. And even my wife was like, well, how come you let her, how come you let them watch The Wizard of Oz? And I was like, man, but that was something I watched as a child, mm-hmm. you know? And I, and I remember, if I can just dive deep, Charla, my, I think it was probably the, the, the like, October of my freshman year. College or high school? High school. When I just discovered, like, how beautiful black girls were. It's like, I was, I, I could tell you the story. I don't know if you guys want to hear it. Tell us the story, Desmond. We Listen, anytime you want to glorify black women on my podcast, it's, it's always was, open. Go ahead. I was, so I went to um, Detroit Cass Tech, and I would say we probably had about 3,500 students. Wow. Wait, one school, 3,500 students? Good floors, God. Um, typically, the freshman class has anywhere from, I would say, twelve to 1,500 students. Holy smokes. It's a, it's a magnet school, and, you know, inevitably kids are kicked out because of grades and, and all of that. But I was just walking up the stairs one day, and I was looking at this girl's calves, and I was like, man, she's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of, it's not when I discovered girls, but it's when I discovered black female beauty and we had you know we we had um our claire huxtables mm-hmm. we had um we had felicia richard we had jane kennedy um you know we had tootie ramsey on facts of life <laughs> we had yeah. we had charlene we had aka janet jackson on on different strokes but there wasn't a lot of black imaging in general and there wasn't a lot of um black female mm-hmm. imaging on, on television. So, you know, I was not um, in love with any girl. I was, you know, I was, I was a slow developer. I was 14. But, um, you know, when I, when I watched Judy Garland and The Wizard of Oz, it was just, I knew she was white, but it didn't mean that she was prettier than Tootie Ramsey. Mm-hmm. She was just a, she was just a girl in a movie. But um, I also had a father, and we were listening to Gil Scott Heron, and I was listening to Public Enemy and mm-hmm. Big Daddy Kane and, and all of those things. So in a lot of ways, I was kind of fortified from that symbolic assault mm. that my children are not necessarily fortified from without me actively saying, no, kind of need to know that um you know this coloring book is important because right it was developed by a black man for his black daughters and we need you to pick like i've talked to my six-year-old about kenneth and mamie clark and a black doll test mm-hmm. and why it's important that she consistently sees herself as being beautiful right We've had conversations about even though she's of a lighter skin how she is um, African 
mm-hmm. and black and that phenotype doesn't necessarily determine where you are and where you're from but that for us like we identify as as being black um so we we've had those conversations my wife is just super at it like the, the hair is not an issue i don't know what she up there doing but <laughs> the hair is not an is not an issue does that mean that they really love and embrace their hair what do you mean when you say their, their hair is not an issue they they love and embrace their hair and my my daughter had some issues because my oldest she was at catholic school for uh for two years for pre-k three and pre-k four um two white teachers white female teachers and then she was the only well she well she wasn't the only black child in her class there were some children who were of mixed race but they didn't identify as being african-american mm-hmm. so um you know she was you know she came home with the proverbial well i can't be a princess because i don't have hair like elsa oh, i don't have wow. i don't have hair like snow white and i was like snow white how did, who even taught you that right mm-hmm. like who snow who, we just got Disney like seven months ago when a pandemic hit. I feel the same way because I've definitely tried to shelter the kids, but then society, you know, is going to introduce them to all these things. You know, you can only do so much in your household, right? So, like, they're going to hear about Snow White regardless, right? Yeah, and I and I picked her up one day in aftercare, and they were watching. Um, and it was a Friday, right? You know, you're not having kids in aftercare do homework at five o'clock on a Friday. I don't care how great <laughs> your school is academically. They, they were watching, um, they were watching Cinderella. Mm. And I said to the aftercare director, I said, why are they watching Cinderella? Mm-hmm. She's like, what's wrong with Cinderella? Mm-hmm. She's like, it's, it's rated G. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, had, I had, I had to pump the brakes. I, I did have a conversation with the principal about, um, you know, my concerns about the lack of equity and attention to details. Mm-hmm. And it just completely went over her head. And I, I came across as the... Um, angry black man? You're the angry You're the angry black guy. And she was already intimidated by me because I was, you know, I had been a principal. So, you know, that was already an intimidation factor. And she couldn't get past going back to the, the, the notion of you know, what's wrong with the messianic complex. She couldn't get past the fact that we're very nice to you and we love your daughter. But as Tina Turner said, what does love have to do with it? Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't facilitize and give my child the same education that you had. Mm -hmm. Right. You can't, we're marked by history. You can't just do that to our children and think it's sufficient. So I'm going to ask you a question on that on that same vein because I I I would argue that the average so the average teacher is is a white female 83 percent of our teachers are white females so that being said I would argue that the average teacher is not equipped to teach black and brown kids they just so for example the fact that we're looking at a movie and saying it's rated G therefore it's appropriate to show all children is is not a mentality that takes into account the experience of black and brown kids the same thing we do with great schools we'll look at great schools we'll see the the ratings and we'll say this is a great school for me to put my black or brown kid but there's no there's no uh, measurement on equity or no measurement on you know is it an anti-racist school so a lot of times like I know in my personal experience my parents put me in a 
white school in a white neighborhood and there was no preparation as to how I'm going to maintain my sense of self-esteem or feel good about my blackness and I didn't feel good about my blackness I very much tried to assimilate I very much tried to blend in and not be noticed and in the end it had it was detrimental impact I, I know they, they just came home hello baby girls if they show oh, up here. I hear them <laughs> this, is, this is uh I call her ODB this is Soraya, because it ain't no father to her style. She's uh, the best of the best. Come here, sweetie pie. Um, but but yeah, and I I was having this conversation with a parent today, without naming schools, but her um, daughter is nine. Say hi oh, how cute are you? Hi, sweetheart. Hi. So what's everybody. Soraya, what does your name mean? So y'all can't see her on the podcast, but she is so cute with little puffy cheeks. So you just want to eat and look just like her daddy. Are you on mute? I can't hear you. Oh, you can't hear me. Can you hear me now? Okay. I was going to say that that, that everybody listening can't see how cute she is, but she got them cheeks. You just want to eat up. She is adorable. That's your oldest. Oh yeah. No, that's my, that's my, my second. Your second. That's your baby. She's uh, she'll be, she'll be three. So yeah. So you were talking about, um, well, the question I asked you is, is, is can, are, can white teachers teach black kids is basically the question I'm asking you. And you said you were just having this discussion without naming schools, and then you were, that's where you left off. So, so here is, um, we were talking, this parent and I um, were talking about her daughter moving around from school to school. Mm-hmm. And it's a dilemma for middle class, um, middle class uh, black people who have needs. Because we don't necessarily default Charlotte to the local school. Mm-hmm. Like my child is not going to the school down the street, um, so we end up sending our children to what we consider to be good schools, right. private schools, and and that good school could be a private school, it could be a parochial independent school, it could just be the school down the street that's in the in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like we're gonna move to this neighborhood to, to go send to the our school, right? To the public schools in the neighborhood which is what my wife wanted. And, um, you know, we fought over it and she, she sees it now, but what happens is those schools don't build black identity. Yes, there it is. When you talk about, when you talk about how do schools, um, not serve you, they, they don't serve black children because the only way to survive or thrive is to, is to take on, the, the characteristics, the personality, the mores, and the folkways of Euro of Eurocentricity. To some, we have to, we have to yeah. assimilate. We have to code switch. We, we have to do, and that's my issue with with school. Is like I want kids to stay in school, but at what, what at what price, right? Like you 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 gain some education, but also you know you're you're, you're getting messages like you said, it destroys a black identity. So I don't feel pride in who I am as a okay. black person, or I think my blackness is, so is a deficit. It's a it's a it's a hamster wheel with two people on a hamster i mean a hamster wheel going in different directions mm, and yes that's, that's really the premise of the book i didn't i didn't write the book for that purpose but as i kept writing charlotte it it really became 
black people in this country have to make a decision mm. around what they want from education. Right. Because if we want access to the middle class, then Teach for America is fine. Charter, charter schools are fine. Fixing up um, our local schools that may be dilapidated and sending people who care about kids into those schools is fine. But if you're talking about building a nation within a nation and retaining um, some semblance of an African identity, that's not going to happen in schools as they're constituted. And it doesn't matter if they're public, mm -hmm. private, it's, it's not going to happen. So the question becomes, if black people want that, if they want the latter, right, um, where are you going to get it? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're, we're looking at homeschool co-ops um, that are kind of quote-unquote African-centered. We're looking at um, I'm looking at starting a school and, I, and I'll tell you it's you know there's so much I can talk about my last experience as a principal because my goal was to turn that school into a demonstration school for the teaching and support of black males mm -hmm. and it was an Episcopal school it was a private school um, it was all black we had one um, we had one Puerto Rican child Charlotte, who left, um, like, uh, my fourth year there. So it was literally all black, a super homogeneous group. Most of those children were from, um, Ward 7 and 8 mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. And, and I said, we're gonna, this is what I'm gonna do. And I had taught there for four years. And I said, well, this is what I did in my classroom. Now I'm just gonna explode it. Right. And that's how the whole building is gonna look. And I got so much pushback from the parents. Why? My, what were they saying? Oh, let me tell you what they said. Mr. Williams, are you really preparing my child to go into the real world? Oh, wow. Or just the black world. <laughs> there's, a, there's a quote in the book. She said, um, and I love this parent to death. She said, Mr. Williams, this was the beginning of the year, right? Her son was going into fourth grade. She said, Mr. Williams, I looked at what what they're going to be learning in social studies, Mr. Williams, and I just had to, um, and I was like, Miss J, just get to it. And she said, I mean, it's cool to be teaching our kids about George Washington Carver, but what about George Washington? Wow. He has to go out and make it in the real world. And I said to her, Miss J, and I, I love this woman. She gave me hell. But I loved her because she reminded me so much of my mother. She was a hairdresser. Mm -hmm. She wanted better for herself. She wanted better for her son. Great woman. And her, her point, her, her um, concern was legitimate. The point that I was trying to make is if you want to make a world where black people can be their authentic selves, at what point do you start? Mm. And a lot of us... Um, as, as black people stall out over what we have to lose and sacrificing to be a part of that change. Mm -hmm. And and that's ultimately um, was a small part, not ultimately, was a small part of, um, of, wh of why I ended up leaving um, BWS. It was a great environment. But I also knew there was nothing more I could do there without getting more 
push back the ceiling right on because their my argument was this is a school for black boys that's the number one identifier mm-hmm. and they said the number one identifier is the fact that we're an Episcopal school mm. and I, I was like you guys are out of your rabbit minds cause right didn't you hear what Malcolm said they don't hang you because you right because you're Episcopal right? <laughs> right they don't hang you because you're Baptist <laughs> or Methodist or Elk they hang you because you're black right um and and what's interesting is that push the pushback that I was getting was not coming from our board, which was I'm gonna say probably ninety percent white. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, to to speak wasn't coming from them. To speak to that, most black people are miseducated, right? So it makes sense to me that you might you might think that the only way to then be successful in society is to assimilate because because personally, like I don't use the knowledge I have about George Washington. In my life, right? But 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 knowing the impact that George Washington Carver made—that he was this super genius that that revolution revolutionized these these agricultural um, uh, things that weren't even you know peanut, the peanuts weren't selling, sweet potatoes weren't selling until he found two hundred three hundred uses for them. Like he he geeked out on ag- agriculture and did amazing incredible things. That gives me a real source of pride, right? Like I don't think of like Einstein's not my example for genius. George Washington Carver is my example for genius. So for me, like that sense of pride is very important to me because I need to know that people like me can make it. And so you can tell me, like, I can have all the good grades and all of that. But again, if I think that my black skin is a deficit, that this is working against me, despite everything I have, you know, working for me, that's preventing me from even uplifting my people, you know, interrupting just generational um, cycles of, of, of whatever. And in addition to like, I really want our people to become entrepreneurs, right? I really want us to create opportunities for other people and to be in charge instead of trying to assimilate and acquiesce to, you know, white cultural norms, which a lot of times are never going to recognize our genius or what we bring to the table. So, but to, to, but to become an entrepreneur, I have to believe in myself, right? I have right. to believe that I'm capable and that I have what it takes. And I think that for me, that's one of the biggest things that the white supremacist culture of our school robs black people of is that sense of determination, that sense of self. And when you just think about the fact that we're still here, that's extreme intelligence to survive, you know, genocide. Because essentially that's what we've experienced is, you know, by definition, it's, it's genocide. So we're still here. We're still surviving. You know, we were president of the United States. That's intelligence. That's a big deal. So, um, but so me saying that I, I, a lot of black people have been miseducated in these public schools. And so I could understand why a lot of that backlash or came from the black community, thinking that we're supposed to be indoctrinated in this white curriculum in order to be successful. Yeah, and I look at it as, um, I don't, I don't, I don't look at it as miseducation, Charlotte. I look at it as if, if that's what you want, Desmond, you just can't do it here. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. Like that's that's not our purpose. And you know, the the honorable Elijah Muhammad said, um, go create your own job. Mm-hmm. And there's there's nothing wrong with the school saying that. It's something wrong with me trying to fix or fit a square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. So so that that's the problem. Go. Oh. Can I take a 10 second break? You can do whatever you need to do. Let's go ahead and take a break. You got to be a dad. 
So again, I am talking to Desmond Williams. He is the author of um, The Burning House. You can get this on Amazon. It's a really great book about educating black boys in modern America. He's a former principal. He is now a consultant, educational consultant with Nylinka School Solutions. So you can reach out to him. And the question I'm about to ask Desmond that I asked him when we first met was, he wrote this book all about educating black boys, but now he has two black daughters. So first of all, why did you write this book? And where do black girls fit into this conversation, especially now that you're a father of two girls? So I, I, I tell us, as I tell the readers in the introduction, um, that there's nothing positive that you can do for black girls that doesn't have a positive effect on black males and vice versa. Um, and in doing the research for the book, I was furious at how black girls um, are right behind black boys in terms of the racism that they face in schools. Right, the data, the suspensions, expulsions, all of it. It is, and you, you know, there's this, um, I was on a panel and they were, they were talking about the criminalization of black girls and the, you, 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 you know the, the episode I'm talking about, but it was the, the security officer pulling the black girl out of her desk. Yeah, and flipping and her in class. Her. Yeah, after her mother died and she wouldn't re- refuse, she refused to give up her phone. That is such a traumatic video. I hate watching yeah. it. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. What What I said was the the unrelated um, trauma or disappointing thing about that video is none of the black males in that classroom stood up to defend her. Mm. That's why I wrote the book. Because they're not going to defend her unless they get a different education. Mm. And they're not going to get an education. They're not going to get that education in schools where we acquiesce to white police officers who abuse our women, mm-hmm. who slam them on the concrete. Like, no different than in the 1960s when, um, you know, as, as Malcolm said, <laughs> two-legged dog, four-legged dogs were being sicked on our people by two-legged dogs Mm -hmm. is no different than James Marion Sims um, experimenting Um, on black black women women. for gynecology or no it's no different so Mm -hmm. so at what point do black males stand up for black women and in doing so you create community and when you have strong families you have strong community when you have strong community you have strong cities, you can build a strong nation. So it, it's not to the exclusion of, of black girls and black women. It's for the sake of um, nation building. And I, and I say at its core, education is about nation building. So it's, it's not pitting, you know, boys against girls because we all, we all catch it. And to say, oh no, I catch it more than you or, you know, that, that's, um, that's non-constructive conversation. I want to add, though, I want to add, though, that there are some unique experiences that black girls have. So first example, dealing with sexism or sex trafficking or sexual exploitation, et cetera, that that I know that boys, um, black boys are often can be sexually abused and and deal with that. But but it it shows up differently. And sometimes black girls are dealing with this from black boys. Right. So like where does so the toxic masculinity piece, where does that play into this? So let me let me talk about the the conversation I had with this parent this morning because one of the things I found in a book that I didn't know and doing a research um, and talking about her daughter going to an Episcopal school here in the D.C. area and having an awful time 
Hmm. Um, is that black boys tend to um, statistically fare better socially in these private schools than do black girls. Hmm. And part of that is because of the, um, the over-sexualization um, and black males tend to get identified as the athlete, right? right? When you talk about othering, it's like, well, he's not really an athlete, but he's the only black guy here. So go pick up a lacrosse stick <laughs> right, or right. go play basketball. He can ride the bench on a basketball team. And at this said, you know, private school in the suburbs, whereas he wouldn't even get a whiff if he was playing in the city. So that was shocking to me to hear um, that black girls have a harder time fitting in. I also but heard, it, though, but it makes sense. It makes sense, given the criminalization, the over-sexualization, um, the, the stereotype that, oh, she has an attitude. Right. That's, she, that's what I'm going to speak on. Mm-hmm. She, she's disrespectful. And it's look at all of the, let's just pile on the white supremacy sexism Mm -hmm. um, the lack of friendliness from from other girl colleagues and the fact that my teachers probably statistically in math and science ignore me and don't think I am uh, a viable candidate or a viable student to do anything Mm -hmm. in a STEM field and that's you know that happens to women in general from 6 to 12 girls 6 to 12 grade but you you throw race on top of that and it's like, oh my God, you, you'll you hear of black girls who are A students in, in math and sciences being told, um, oh, why don't you be a teacher mm-hmm. when you could be an astronaut? There's nothing wrong with being a teacher, but or, you could be an astronaut. Yeah, a rocket scientist, you right. I mean, anything. So, and yeah, I, I heard well, it was the dynamics between a lot of white teachers and black female students that they're, that, that whole perception of you have an attitude or there's there's a lot of disciplinary issues because of the cultural miscommunication one of the the biggest issues i dealt with um before i got to the bishop walker school as an administrator was refereeing is the is the term i was going to use disputes between a few white female teachers and and black girls mm-hmm. like and I'm thinking of these two white female teachers who never had a problem with the Latino boys Latinx girls black males but there were about three or four girls and this is in middle school mm-hmm. right where it's like oh my god she's so disrespectful and it's and defiant you take yourself out of the equation and listen to what's not being said right That that's the main thing you know, sometimes it's like, what, girl, you said that? You weren't supposed to say that to her? You're not supposed to say that to anybody, let alone think it. They're, you know, there's some of that, too. But, um, you know, the cultural disconnect and helping um, uh, white females and, and even Asian female teachers mm-hmm. understand what they're hearing and the angst that um, a lot of black girls, really from 11 and 12 on up, get. They're being disrespected walking to and from school. They're not only over-sexualized in music and in media, they're over-sexualized on the way to and from school. Right. Like you, you're talking grown men. Oh, I remember that. It's about age 12. Age 12 is when it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's there's that too. Um, and that is, you know, a lot of times when 
we when um, girls are quote unquote mouthing off or being disrespectful to teachers, it's the teacher, but it's all of those other adults who I would say failed them. Right. Thinking about the cat calling and the over sexualization and the over criminalization. It's it's in in a way it's a form of I think you use the term rebellion or resistance. Mm-hmm. That that's a lot of it. Um, but there's a lot to unpack there and working with teachers, you literally again I use the term bundled software. You got is, is that is that a, a euphemism for, for, for BS? No, my my mentor Michael Billion used the term uh, "bundle software" to mean, you know, you have this really good teacher. She knows mm-hmm. her pedagogy. She loves kids. She's one of the first people in the building. She'll turn the lights on for you. She'll call parents at eight o'clock at night. Um, but the bundled software is the the cultural incompetence, mm. right? It's like the the Trojan horse. It's like, oh, I got this nice MacBook. And then you type in something and the computer's frozen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, you know, like what's all of these, what are all of these add-ons here? Like how come, you know, how come I have to deal with this? Like how come I, how come I keep getting these pop-ups, mm-hmm. right? That's the bundled software that we have to deal with. Um, and it, it's fine. You just have to know that you come with bundled software. Right, which helps. And, and I think that that, I mean, one of the things, the first thing I teach in my three-part consulting is identity because um, most people, most teachers don't know they're white. And so if you don't know you're white, then you can't have, we can't have a conversation about, you know, the cultural things that are going on because you think you're an individual. And, and so back to, I mean, can white teachers teach black kids about black identity? You're asking me that? Yeah. And your, in your opinion, do you think that that's something that our kids just have to get somewhere else? Or is it, is it possible that they could get that and is it possible they cannot run in opposite directions on the hamster wheel in public it's, school? It's only possible if they're taught how to teach it. Right. Because we, we, black teachers and Asian teachers and teachers of color, teach white children about white identity every right. day of the school year. Amen. So it's possible. But where are you going to get that at? Right. <laughs> there, um, Principal Kafele. Um, who's who's just great. He's like he's he's probably I'm just gonna call him the Michael Jordan of education. He probably wouldn't want me to call him that. But what is, is that he, is that Doctor Kafele? He you know what Doctor Kafele doesn't have a doctorate. Okay, I'm thinking about somebody else. Keep going. But um one of the things he says is are you qualified to talk about black history and black identity with black children? And if you're not what are you reading? Mm. Right? I've done, um, you know, just in the workshop circuit, Charla, I used to do a workshop on um, teacher textual lineages. And textual lineages comes from Dr. Alfred Tatum. This notion of what are the books that you read and reread over again that, uh, that help you keep, maintain, and self-identify as an African-American. So I started asking that question to teachers, mm-hmm. and it was amazing to me. Um, I got I did this at the um, Black Male Educator Fellowship Conference in Philadelphia in 2016 and 17, and we were citing books like uh, T. 
teach like a champion and um, visible learning and Todd Whitaker and all of these Eurocentric figures. Right. I was like, I haven't heard one black author. author. <laughs> I did. I did that conference at a workshop in Charlotte in 2019 um, where heterogeneous group, it was male and female um, teachers of all races and ethnicities. And we got a lot more Lisa Delpit. Right. A, a lot more um, Dr. Tatum, Dr. Beverly Tatum. Maybe some Desmond Williams. You know what? We didn't. They didn't have their Desmond Williams yet. But, <laughs> not um, yet. <laughs> not yeah. But um, just teacher education is an issue. Absolutely, absolutely. The the education that we give in America schools will not loan it lend itself to teachers being equipped. Right. to give black students black identity but black identity is a threat to white supremacy and and there it is because i said that, that that to me is the same reason why we don't teach black history is because black history tells on white people it, it tells the brutal side of, of white history that we don't want to we don't want to talk about um so that yeah and i i tell i tell white teachers you have to be careful how you identify what do you mean by that because you you can say I didn't own slaves, and I'm like that's that's nothing. great, but you don't have to be ashamed of white history. Mm-hmm. You can say, you know what, people in my family line may have done that, but I am making the decision to identify with people who have high character, mm-hmm. and when you have high character, that puts you in a position to side with people present and future who are doing things to end white supremacy. Right. So you, you stop saying I didn't own slaves. Okay. But say, you know what? I choose to be a person who wants to be on the right side of history. Dr. King said um, that liberal uh, whites needed to educate themselves out of their own ignorance as to the plight of black people. Just let, let it to Birmingham jail? No, that was in uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos mm-hmm. or Community, and uh, which is a really great book. I think it's it's too deep for high school, I think. Maybe parts of it, but I think everyone should read that book before they finish undergrad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the first book by Dr. King that I read. I have um, Why We Can't Wait. I just haven't delved into it yet, mm-hmm. but um, Where Do We Go From Here is, is it's just awesome. Um, but he, but I think in educating yourself, um, out of that ignorance, part of it is, um, understanding that where you are presently doesn't have to be where you stay and you can be a part of the change, but it requires a lot of hard work on your part because you're talking about hundreds of years of criminality, abuse, rewriting history erasing history um creating a world that's dysfunctionally upside down mm-hmm. um so with your it, I, I believe it's going to take generations to get past that point as well but that doesn't mean that we all don't have a part to play in in, in moving the needle if you will I have, I have a couple questions for you so one is like I know that um, for me, as a as somebody who's in education, 
And as a parent, as a black parent, sometimes I feel like um, those things are working against each other to some respect. So, so, so meaning that I know that um, as an educator, I represent an oppressive system or I can, I can, I, I work in an oppressive system. And I know that when I've worked with black parents um, before that they've had suspicion of me or they, they, they talk to me like I was the school system, right? And I understood that because um, every year at the beginning of the school year, I'm always talking to my children's teachers and I do come into it with an attitude of um, you're not going to do right by my kid. Like that's pretty much my my assumption. I'm not I'm not starting from um, assuming positive intentions or whatever. So I'm always letting them know, you know, who I am, what I do, that we know our rights, that my kids will not be saying the Pledge of Allegiance, that you we need to make sure that we're teaching a, a cross-cultural curriculum. And should you say something you know, left field, my kids are going to call you out on it. So for example, my son, when he was um, eight years old, he had a report on Mount Rushmore. And then he did the report. At the end of the report, he said, um, he included a fun fact. He's like, you know, this is a, this was stolen land. And this is a symbol of white supremacy, right? It's, it's a, it's a monument to white supremacy, right? So I wanted these teachers to make sure that like, you know, my kids are elementary school, they're six and eight, but they will let you know, and they will raise their hand and say things. And, and what happens often is that especially when our kids get older that same behavior is looked at as defiant or disrespect and that same kid who's who's again resisting your white supremacist indoctrination who's raising their hand and saying that's actually not true oftentimes will be threatened with being removed from class or getting disciplinary action when they are actively participating you know in in the dialogue so my question for you is just i know that for me that i'm an educator and i'm a parent and like the system you know is 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 can be great for my kids, could also be out to get my kids. And there's this push-pull within me as a black parent. It's almost like being like a black police officer. So what are your thoughts as you are yeah, raising these young people? It's a, it's right. a hamster wheel it's again. Hamster so wheel. A, a few thoughts come to mind. The first is um, the awakening that we have to go through as, as educators. Mm-hmm. And every system has um, people who are abused by the system, but are at the same time rewarded for their participation mm-hmm. in the system. Yep. And and that's the that's the female experience, and that's the African American experience. So, for for instance, I just um, finished rereading. Uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow mm-hmm. and I don't know how familiar you are with that book Charlotte but when I was I think I read it the first time in 2016-ish mm-hmm. but I, I reread it I started rereading it in January and the the opening the intro of the book she talks about running to get on a bus um, there was a protest happening and one uh sign that one of the protesters was holding said uh, mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow Mm. and she was living in I believe she was living in Los Angeles at the time but she said that's kind of that's far out right right that's radical (laughs) that's like that's way out there and she said the more and you know this is Michelle Alexander brilliant had been a practicing attorney for probably you know, your, your readers can correct me if I'm wrong, but for numerous years, right? And that thought had never occurred to her mm-hmm. that the work that she was doing, the system that she was in, 
was hurting and harming people of color. Sometimes you're too close to it. Yeah. And when I read that, I said, I think I stole the intro of her book. (laughs) Because the beginning of my book, Sharla, is it's talking about a reawakening, right? Mm -hmm. I get, you know, I was working as an administrator for a number of years. I'm sorry, I was working as an educator for a number of years. I was an assistant principal. I got terminated. Mm-hmm. I know. I wow. That's, that's where it was powerful, school. too. And I was like, what? wait a minute. Like, right. How is it that you're at an all-boys school? You've been in a game for 12 years, and you don't know how to educate black boys. Mm-hmm. And in the process of learning that, it was like, yo, dude, how did you get this? How did you get this far? Mm-hmm. And it, and it, it was um, Carter G. Woodson all over again. And I read Carter G. Woodson when I was in undergrad. You know, I read Marcus Garvey when I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up with a father who was reading John Henry Clark and Chancellor Williams. I went to what many consider to be the finest HBCU. I went to Howard. I, know, I went to Howard too, baby. I see your sweatshirt. Where, where <laughs> that information is just in the ether. Which like, is great because I love that it was black-centered. I, I And all my other colleges, I had to raise my hand and get the black perspective. But when I was at Howard, they taught from that perspective. They taught, and I loved it. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so we are all. Um, that's why I don't like to use the term woke. Mm-hmm. I, I prefer the term when we were younger. We used to say consciousness. Yeah, conscious, conscious brothers. Woke is <laughs> woke is binary, but consciousness is it, it moves in stages and in levels. A spectrum. And I think when we look at it from that perspective, we are able to uh, be within the system and still help children self-actualize or and, or as I say in the book put on um, the oxygen tanks and the mask in order to get through the system but ultimately um, as, as I've stated before I don't see how we can as black people move. you can't move through that system and get an outcome that's going to lead to nation building what what is nation building? What does that mean to you? I, I I think of it specifically as building a nation within a nation. You talked about the notion of entrepreneurship, um, moving black people out of the space of being strictly in service industries, where we are um, building our own grocery stores, but we are also sourcing the food that mm-hmm. goes in those grocery stores. So you can start a grocery store, Charlotte, right? Mm-hmm. You can start a hair salon, but where is the weed coming from? India. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like how do how do we how do we put ourselves in a position to gather the means of production? Right. Um, one of the, one of the things I say, I, I believe it's in chapter one of the book, is which was eye opening to me, that there are a plethora of black owned businesses, but most oh, of yeah. our businesses are in service industries and I believe 85 to 90 percent of black owned businesses are one man shows. Yeah, it's it's, it's page seven. And you said that there are, there's two million or there's two million black businesses, but only 100,000 of those businesses have paid employees. Fifty two percent are in service industries, consulting, sales, repair and maintenance. So, yeah, two million black owned businesses, but we still don't have enough autonomy or control. Right. So. So, yeah. so for me, our education is about um controlling means to production Mm -hmm. um our own identity 
and then solving the problems in our communities. Like, how are you going to, like, miseducation is a problem in our community. You know, I was arguing with a talking head who I really respect about charter schools, and I was like, dude, stop talking about school choice. Like, you're you're confusing people. You can't say, you can't say because a charter school is in a neighborhood and I'm against, Desmond is against charter schools, that I'm against black children. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm against the paternalism of um, well-intentioned, I'm going to assume well-intentioned white people building charter schools and saying this is the best way to educate black children. These kids, yeah. Black, black people should be saying this is the best way to educate our children. And furthermore, you can't have school choice if you have a really good charter school with really great teachers. Right, in a crummy public local, school. But mm-hmm. the local school is dilapidated. Right, That's it's not trash. A choice, right? right, it's it's like if I give you, it's like if you give a kid a cup of Kool Aid and some water. Right. That's not a real right? choice. Not a choice. Kool Aid. Right. No Kool Aid. Right. <laughs> like chocolate milk versus white milk. All kids want chocolate. That's not a choice. Right. So you build um, functioning public schools, and then if a family or groups of families say, you know what, how come? this really great like Stevenson elementary school down the street is a great school but they don't have I really want dual immersion Mm -hmm. like how come how come we don't have dual immersion and then the system says well if your kid gets on a bus and goes five or miles they can get dual immersion that that school choice right and and giving those options I think is critical but to to leave black and brown people abandoned in dilapidated neighborhoods with poor schools and then to to throw Ebony and Ivory Charter School <laughs> down the street next to the dog park and say, send your kids here. I mean, that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's weaponized oppression mm-hmm. um, disguised as uh, saviorism, you know? And all of those schools are, all of, most of those schools, not all of them, but a good percentage of those schools are ran by African-Americans, but the power, right? The power structure, the, the funding behind it. It's still white. It's insane. So I, I, I am going to be wrapping up our episode soon, but my question for you is for educators who really want to do right by black and brown kids, but understand it's an oppressive racist system, um, and maybe or maybe are working in a school that does not see the urgency of these issues, or maybe you know they're they're swimming upstream. What advice do you have for that educator? What can they do to do right by black and brown kids? Great, great question. Great question. The first thing you should do, educator, is control what you can control. The number one thing you should be asking yourself is: Are the lessons I'm doing tomorrow? moving black children towards nation building Mm. that's the first question like is this lesson oppressive like start there right Right. i'm a teacher i gotta i got lessons i'm teaching tomorrow like is that oppressive right the second thing we have to do is um hearkening back to dr king is we have to educate ourselves um as as white liberals we have to educate ourselves on what has happened and is currently happening 
to African Americans because you don't see um, black people in chains. You don't see um, like right. We have an Obama presidency. We you know you have black attorney generals and all of these um, symbols of black excellence, which makes it difficult to understand how black people can say, no, there's still oppression, there's still racism mm-hmm. and things like that. So educating yourself on why black why black people still have those cries. I think decolonizing, and that's part of this notion of um, decolonizing, um, everything you taught, everything you were taught as a child mm-hmm. um, coming up through K-12 was designed to support um, white identity um, and Eurocentrism and that's fine until you have other groups of people in that system who are not able to thrive and who are not able to survive so that decolonization and really understanding the bundled software again of what you received through your education the third thing I would say and this is um I talk about this a lot in chapters nine and 10 um, is you have to fight in the halls of power. Principals and teachers only have so much power, Mm -hmm. but there is so most of what happens that affects us is in our school board meetings, uh, central um, downtown central office. Mm -hmm. No, our school board meetings at the city and at the state level. And if we don't put pressure on what Charlotte Sullivan calls uh, good white people, then you will have um, African-Americans and uh, brown people not having control of the schools four blocks away from where they live. Mm -hmm. And you'll still have unequal funding for schools. You'll still have uh, schools where again the funding sources is is predicated on tax revenue Mm -hmm. you'll still have uh teach for america and these other fly-by-night excuse me drive-by um teacher preparation programs that are inadequately preparing what i assume are well-intentioned people not equipping them and our children continuing to fail so those are the three places I would start. I'm working on a companion guide to the book. I actually just sent it to the editor, um, but it's called Firefighting for Black Children. It's a field guide um, and a journal, and it talks about, like, what does firefighting mean? What mm. does that advocacy mean for me, particularly if I'm alone? Right, like, yes. Like, how do I do that by myself? Like, my And not burn out. And... And, and not burn out. And, and one of the things I, I don't address in the journal is, um, you know, revolutionaries tend to die burnt out. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of the nature of the game. Um, it's, it's not an uncomfortable space to be in, but I don't think teaching black children can mean what it meant in the 90s and in the 70s and in the 30s and the 40s. What do you mean by that? It's it's more than pedagogy, mm. right? I, I, I break the book down. I break teaching down into two camps in the book. It's the, it's the political and it's the pedagogy. 
And if you think black children are failing because teachers don't know pedagogy, you're just, you missed the boat. Right. This is, this is political warfare. Right. So if you don't, if you don't engage in that political struggle and that political battle and that political war, it's, it's literally like an acapella rap song. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's cool, but there's no beat. <laughs> and no like bass. Really, <laughs> like really you guys just gonna do that or it's like yo that beat is hot like is somebody gonna come in and rhyme on it right that that's literally education if teachers don't pick up the pedagogy and the political mm-hmm. um you said that revolutionary is often in burnt out um just to what, what one of the things I'm doing with my coaching is the first four weeks of my 12 weeks to becoming an anti it's 90 days becoming an anti-racist school and at the end people will have it um anti-racist action plan for the school year but the first four weeks are all about that the mindset is all about you know the, the what's going to sustain you because a lot of times you want to move right into action but what we know is that teachers not even doing this work just the average teacher not even necessarily committed to anti-racism work you know is out within five years because it's such a thankless you know um, overwhelming taxing job so when you add in the piece of swimming upstream and going against cultural norms and all of that then it's even it's even more so so that piece about the the self-care piece should be should be a non-negotiable for any teacher who's committed to you know doing this work for the long term and really wanting to make a change and too often you know it because teachers tend to be a certain type of person a very selfless person who gives and gives and gives they forget to give to themselves and at the end of the day you know if you can't maintain and sustain yourself you can't be any good to anybody else and i know that my weakest moments as a parent and as a teacher were when i'm the most stressed out you know, the most, um, I'm not taking care of myself, I'm tired. That's when I fall into patterns of, of ways of being because because there's intention. You have to be intentional about this work, right? Because uh, the default is to just do what maybe the way that you've been taught or the way that you've been treated. And that tends to be, you know, racist, sexist, you know, discriminatory. So I know that when I'm we taking care of myself, I'm sorry? We teach who we are. Right. And, and, and when I'm good, when I'm taking care of myself, then I'm able to really be intentional and thoughtful and conscious about what it is I'm presenting to young people. But when I'm not, that's when I have those those moments that keep me up at night and where I'm really just reevaluating, like, you know, was I oppressive, you know, or how was I oppressive? So I think that self-care piece is huge. And too many of us, you know, will end up dying on the job in one way or another, you know, long whether it's, you know, quick or whether it's slow um, because that self-care piece is not in place. So... I appreciate no, I, you sharing that. I I agree with you. I I have not been the best role model, um, even as a principal. Like I'm I'm not ashamed to say it. I, I want people to learn from my mistakes. But I would have teachers. Uh, so my so here was the worst part of my job as an administrator: was finding substitutes. Mm. So I would have teachers. I I used to have them sub during their prep period. Was that you? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, I but I would tell teachers, okay, listen, if you know you're not going to come in, call me at like nine or between uh, 9.30 and 10 o'clock the night before. Mm-hmm. And if it's in the morning, you don't feel well, try to call me before six, right? But I would try to talk teachers out of come. Like, you trying to take off? Come on, man. Come in. <laughs> it's Wednesday. You stay home Friday. Like, I was terrible because, um, A, I really love my teachers, right? And pretty much when all of the teachers were in the building, Charlotte, my job was so easy. Mm-hmm. I could spend my time focusing on our bigger goals mm-hmm. as opposed to 
putting out fires. Um, the little the fires in the whirlwind, but I was not the best role model, and I would until I got really until we had our second child, I never took off. Never. Wow. Never. And and I see that um, often that teachers they they don't put those boundaries on until they have kids. Like I was telling another teacher friend of mine, I was like, act like your kids are in daycare. And, and leave the building. You know what I mean? Act like you're going to be fine if you're not somewhere else by this time. Because it wasn't until I had kids that I started to establish boundaries in, in my life as well. But why do we wait until we have kids? Because even then, you're just going to your second shift. You know what I mean? Like, can I tell, can I tell a quick story? <laughs> yes, tell a quick story. We were, my wife was about five and a half months pregnant. Um, we were. Was it first child or second? First child. first child we were putting monies down to purchase our first house we were living in a condo um in in silver spring it was a friday before the king holiday mm-hmm. i was a i was a classroom teacher charlotte and i talked to my wife around noon and uh we were we were newlyweds it's january we got married that june mm-hmm. and she said are you coming straight home because we were gonna like have a Netflix night or something. I was like, oh yeah. No, yeah, date night. Home. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to be home. I'm leaving right at 3.30. And uh, 3.30 came and I just started rearranging my room and I started decorating and I started grading papers and I looked up, Charlotte, it was seven o'clock. Mm. And I said, I texted my wife. She was like, oh, you suck. I'm mad at you. She but kept it real. It was, <laughs> I got in. I got in my car to leave Charlotte, and um, not paying attention because I was tired. I um, ran into the back of a Ford F one fifty, which is essentially a a, a a synonym for tank. Right. Right. Total my car. No. And we had, they were running, because we were in the process of buying a house, they were running our credit. Um, so I couldn't purchase, purchase another car. Purchase, couldn't purchase another car. I hit a, um, a DC water and sewage car. The guy no. got out of his car, Charlotte, holding his neck and his back. He no, not the <laughs> neck and the out. back. Like, oh my God. And it just goes to show I wasn't really in a position to drive. I should have left work at 3.30. And kicked it with your wife. (laughs) I had a a beautiful wife at home. We were pregnant. It was a three-day weekend. But I said, man, if I do this, when I come back on Tuesday, we're going to hit it. Mm -hmm. And you just have to, you, you have to enjoy family. Right. We, we just we have to jo- enjoy family. Our time here is is limited. Right. We don't know what tomorrow is like. And, you know, I'm sure whatever I did was helpful to our children. But it was it was really more to appease myself. I probably really wasn't moving the needle in terms of what my kids were going to get that week. Mm-hmm. But it just made me feel good. So. We have to engage in the self-care. We have to have a shut-off valve. We have to create those boundaries. Um, it's it's the only way you're going to sustain yourself. Like it, just, it it doesn't always feel like it makes sense in the moment, but it you know it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, and we and those those boundaries are are crucial. Yeah. So note the self. 
um, to, to all of uh, Charlotte's listeners, go home, be with your family, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with turning it off and leaving it there for tomorrow. Because no one's going to remember, when you're not here, nobody's going to remember that you stayed at work until 8 o'clock at night. Except the people who missed you, right? And who's going to remember? Your wife's going to remember. The only person who remembers that day is your wife and maybe the person you hit, right? Like, yeah. And then I saw him. He was like, yo, man, I remember you. You hit me. And I was like, yeah, you got out the car falling like you was hurt. I was like, dude, I was going two miles an hour. He was like, yo, man, I ain't worked for like eight months. It's all good, man. I was like... So he, he he got a vacation. He got his self care, but you didn't get yours. Oh, <laughs> so, so, how can people get your book, and how can they work with you, and and where and where are you, and what do you specialize in? We know, so but tell us anyway. We are my link of school solutions. We are actually doing a lot of work around equity audits for schools. Um, we are still hell bent on helping schools support and help black boys. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, um, you can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at Nylinka. That's uh, N-Y-L-I-N-K-A. You can email me at D Williams, D as in Desmond Williams, at Nylinka.org. Again, Nylinka is N-Y-L-I-N-K-A dot O-R-G. If you want to purchase the book, there are a few ways. If you want the book uh, from me signed, you can go to the Nylinka website, go to the products tab, and I will send your book to you. Um, or you can go to Amazon, and Amazon will ship the book to you uh, in two days, no short order. So um, that's the best way to get uh, get with me. And again, the uh, website, www.nylinka.org. Go to the products tab. But um, I pride myself on being a thought partner for schools. I am a consultant. We all have bills to pay. But um, I love being a thought partner. Um, I was talking to a school today, and I referred them to um, a colleague of mine. So it's it's not about um, me selling you something. It's about uh, us creating community. Um, to make the world a better place for all children. Um, because I think the work that we do now, Charlotte, the, the biggest problem on the planet is racism. Mm. And I refuse to believe that my children are going to have conversations like the one you and I are having in 35 years. Right. So I think we have to continue to do that work um, and continue to move towards justice when it comes to your equity audits and the work that you do are you virtual or do that to be in the east coast dc area to work with you so no the 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 audits can definitely be virtual what i'm what i'm finding is it's a little bit more difficult um in terms of the classroom observations Mm -hmm. we just don't see as much on zoom and then teachers are not um despite all of the hard work and the innovation that teachers have put into managing virtual learning. Mm-hmm. Teachers are just not their best selves right. on Zoom. So, for instance, I have an audit that's starting on the 12th, um, but I will be physically going into classrooms. Um, there's another audit that I'm doing with the school system 
um, they're less concerned about what's happening in classrooms. They want to look at their curriculum, uh, suspension data, referral data for special education, mm -hmm. AP and honors courses, things like that. And then um, specifically uh, also looking at um, rate of pay mm -hmm. between men and women, between black and white, between uh, whites and minorities. So it, it really depends, but I, I'm telling everyone I'm, I'm willing to travel so long as I'm not violating school district um, guidelines and uh, we're adhering to CDC guidelines. So it really depends, but it is, it, there is a way to, there's definitely a way to do them virtually. Um, and then there's, um, there's always uh, thinking about the classroom spaces at a later date in time and kind of starting the work, uh, getting, getting the information to school leaders and school districts that we can use and then doubling back Mm -hmm. and coming into classrooms at a later date and time. But some of that information um, from classroom observations, we can find out through through interviews and focus groups and town hall meetings and things like that. So there is a way to get that information. But the hardcore, one of the things I do, Charlotte, is I talk about this notion of breaking instructional equity, which is in chapter five of the book. It's, it's rethinking uh, pedagogy and really tapping into differentiation and thinking about learning styles, learning modalities, and accommodating students in that space, mm -hmm. because that's a tremendous help uh, to boys in general, mm -hmm. because schools are norm um, on the developmental best of girls. So really tapping into that instructional equity. Um, so it is possible, but if you really want the, the root as uh, as my grandmother says, I, I kind of got to be in classrooms. Yeah, to see um, to feel it too. What teachers are what to watch what yeah. teachers are doing. Yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. Well, I appreciate you very much for being on my podcast. You were my first guest besides my children, so congratulations. Um, and again, this I'm was. Honored. <laughs> this was Desmond Williams. He is the um, owner, right, of Nylinka School Solutions. And also, really quickly, now now that I know your story, the story of your of your company, um, I understand because I know that you that Nylinka was the name of like uh, you you met a little boy who wanted to open up his own car shop or something like that, right? It's a kid, a kid on my street, who um, re really quickly I was. Uh, it was right before my senior year and my buddies were picking me up we were going shopping at the mall and you know this is before cell phones i'm like yo you just be outside man be outside because you're always <laughs> late so i went outside and, were, and was waiting for him and this kid name was Devin. he was outside playing with matchbox cars mm -hmm. and again we grew up in detroit I, I loved cars i had remote control cars and burning key cars matchbox hot wheels and you know i was you know i just sat down next to him I would toss a football with him every now and then. I was 17. He was about nine, maybe 10. Um, but we, we weren't peers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we started talking and I was like, yo, it was one particular car that was just like crazy. I was like, yo, they didn't have matchbox cars like that when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. and he was like, yo, I love cars. And I was like, I, I used to love cars too. I used to draw them all the time. And he was like, yo, hold on. And he ran into his apartment. And uh, he came out with this just like tattered and dilapidated notebook. And he had all of these, Charlotte, he had all of these like super great sketches of 
like race cars, trucks, um, SUVs, which were not popular back then. Oh, wow. Yeah, they sure weren't. They sure weren't. And I was like, yo, where did, where did this come from? He was like, I drew these, man. And I was like, are you serious? You drew that? He was like, yeah. And he was like, and one day, I'm going to have my own car company. It's going to be bigger than General Motors. I'm going to call it Nylinka. And I was like, Dag, that's a that's a dope name. He was like, uh, I was like, what are you gonna do? He was like, man, we just gonna build, we just gonna build hot cars for people. <laughs> he was like, you shouldn't have to. He's he was ten. He said you shouldn't have to be in a beat up car just because you have a family. Mm-hmm. You can have a dope car and a family. Amen. I heard that. <laughs> I heard that. You trying to be no minivan? I like him. And, uh, I was like, yo, keep, I said, keep, keep drawing and keep sketching. And, uh, that was the last time I saw him. Mm-hmm. And so you named your, you named your company after him. I love that. You, the, uh, so after I, the dreams of a I, black boy. Yeah. I, t- I took the name to represent the dreams of all of our children mm-hmm. that get squelched and killed and, and unrealized in schools. And hopefully we can yeah. we can make a difference. I love that story. I think it's a really powerful story, and I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your expertise. I appreciate your lived experience, and most importantly, your commitment and dedication to our kids in these schools. Um, and so I hope that this hopefully this will yield you some business and and also some change because I know that at the end of the day, you know, money's good, but I can't buy my way out of white supremacy. I can't buy freedom, right? I can't buy safety for my kids. So at the end of the day, I want change and I know that you do too. So we appreciate your time here, Desmond. Uh, of course, we will be, we'll have you again, um, hopefully. And again, um, various ways to reach out to Desmond, I'll include it in my show notes if you would like to get more information and also acquire his book. I think his book is excellent reading for any anti-racist educator, um, a must have. Uh, so absolutely pick up his book. And thank you so much for our, our time today. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. All right.